Good morning, and let me invite you to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, Matthew 14. And as you open your copy of the Lord's Word to Matthew chapter 14, let me reiterate a couple of things. Uh, One, uh, if you are new or newer to Covenant Presbyterian Church, uh, there is a class, a pastor's class during the Sunday school hour. It meets in the large classroom just off our main lobby. We'd love to have you be a part of that. Uh, uh, That is where we... Uh, identify who we are and what we believe the scriptures teach and how in, uh, empowered by God's grace we're seeking to live lives in conformity to his word. So join us during that time. The second, uh, uh, with respect to dual showers, it is not brother and sister, ten paces, uh, guns turned. Uh, again, it is uh, Ruth and future sister-in-law, Rayleigh, uh, that's this afternoon, so congratulations to the Stevens family, uh, and to the Beatys, and, and to the Crosses, and to the Reynolds, and to the Hobbs, and to the Millers, and to the Mobleys, and uh, several others I'm probably missing on upcoming weddings. Matthew chapter 14, this is the Word of God. Familiar passages here, verses 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the uh, while he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he, that is Jesus, was there alone. But the boat uh, by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. Uh, And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The Lord help us to hear and to understand and to apply this, his word. Now, we've just read this account from Matthew's gospel, for, but for just a moment, mark that, Matthew chapter 14, and turn with me over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're going to come right back to Matthew. But turn over to John's parallel account of this in John chapter 6. John, as is his style, will often give us a larger view of the same events that are recorded in the other Gospels. 
And what I want to do is to establish the context for Matthew's passage by looking at some, some things that John says about this same account in John chapter 6. There are a couple of crucial things to note here if we're going to really understand what's going on in Matthew 14. John chapter 6, and look at verse 4. John is the only one who tells us the time of the year of this preceding miracle, if you will, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000. The only one who tells us the time of the year for the feeding of the 5,000. And the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle outside of the resurrection itself that is recorded in all four Gospels. And only John tells us when it took place. John chapter 6, verse 4. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. It was Passover season. And that's important. And the second thing is down in verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done... That is the feeding of the 5,000. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now turn back with me, if you will, to Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 14. So we, when we read here in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 14:22, where it says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and to go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd, we realize that there's a, a, a great sense of urgency to what Jesus is doing here. It's Passover season. And every Passover season there were these great, messianic expectations they sort of came to a fever pitch in israel the people would say could this be the year could this, could this be the time is it this passover season is it during this passover celebration that the messiah will finally appear and that intense longing that longing according to their understanding of who the Messiah would be, one who would rule over them in Jerusalem on the throne as David and Solomon had done, became fever-pitched during this time. They wanted Rome off their backs. They wanted an end to all of the uh, unjust taxation and extortion. They wanted to cast off the wicked social system in which they were so oppressed in their own country. They wanted to discard the Roman puppet kings, the Herods. And the people saw Jesus do these tremendous miracles. They heard His words that He spoke, those words which were unlike their teachers, those words that were accompanied with such authority and power. And then Jesus performed this feeding miracle which brought to mind the ministry of Moses when he had been God's instrument of bringing manna to the people in the wilderness, it brought to mind certainly Elijah and how Elijah had been cared for of God in his ministry to the widow at Zarephath 
where he was uh, staying during the three years of famine that had been brought on by the sins of Ahab and Jezebel. Our Lord's works may have also reminded the people of Elijah's protege, Elisha. And at least two times we have uh, recorded of God multiplying oil and bread through His ministry. And in 2 Kings 4, we read that once Elijah was, for, uh, was used to feed a hundred prophets with a little, uh, 20 little barley loaves. And now Jesus has fed 5,000 men plus women and children with a couple of, of dried fish and, and barley loaves. So the people are excited. They're excited and and perhaps beside themselves saying, Moses told us of a prophet. Remember Moses back in Deuteronomy 18.15 told of a prophet who is going to come, who is going to be like me. This is the one that you're to listen to. He'll be from among you. And, And many are asking, could this be the prophet that has been promised? But we, met, but we know from John chapter 6 that the discussion had gone beyond that. They weren't just saying, is this the prophet? They were saying, this must be the king himself. This must be the champion of Israel. This must be the long-anticipated and expected Messiah. And so there were those who wanted to take Jesus and to make him king by force. Now imagine how the disciples were feeling as they began to see and sense this public approval, uh, this swelling of the crowd. They began, this began to sweep through the crowd, first prophet, then king, and they think, our moment has arrived. We've left everything to follow Jesus. Our families have thought us crazy. We've been criticized. We've been laughed at. We've had to sleep outside under trees, giving ourselves as His disciples. We've, we've virtually lived as beggars, having to eat what people would give us, and then to glean what we could as we walked through the fields during harvest time. This, they must have thought, is our moment of vindication. For this He came into the world. And we recognize that we were on board early. We saw that He was not only the prophet, but the King. That He was the Messiah. And we knew that early on before anyone else. And we followed Him. And now we're going to be vindicated. They must have been giving each other sort of a high fives, rejoicing in the fact now that the people also recognize that. Everyone else is seeing it, and they're going to make him king by force. We're going to, to be moving forward. I, I think of the Jefferson song. We're going to be moving on up. You know, they're going to, to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, to, and there's this popular movement that is going to break out. Thousands will gather in our train and we'll knock down all opposition to his rule and we'll take the city and the nation will be in a great state of joy and he will be seated during this Passover on the throne of David. Wow. Wow. But what does Jesus do? The one who came into the world for this, didn't he? 
Doesn't John complain in his prologue that he came into his own and his own received him not? But Jesus, we read in verse 22, makes his disciples get into the boat. But Lord, shouldn't we even get into the boat? Wait a minute. Can't you sense this? Maybe you're politically naive, but we, in, you know, we have a tune on this. We know what's going to happen. We're sensitive to this movement. Get into the boat. Get into the boat. And he made them get into the boat and made them go across the lake and he made the crowd disperse and he went up into the mountain to be alone in prayer with the Father. Why? There are three offices of Christ in the Scripture. He had come to be the prophet, the one who speaks the word of God to the people of God. He had come to be the king, the one who represents God's rule and directs and leads the people of God. But he had also come to be that great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the one whom John called when he pointed to him at the outset of his public ministry, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And until he had given himself perfect priest, offering him himself as perfect sacrifice, he would not yet rule and reign in the hearts of his people, and he could not yet, and they could not yet bear his rule and reign. And they could not hear the word of the Lord from his lips, and begin to follow him in obedience because they had not dealt with the only bondage that really mattered. Their problem wasn't political. It wasn't a problem with the people over them, though they thought, though they thought it was. The, their problem wasn't economic. It wasn't a matter of taxation without representation, though they thought it was. Their problem was not social being an oppressed people in their own land, not being given uh, respect and credit and empowerment that they felt that they deserved, though they thought it was. Their problem was that they were bound to their own desires, bound to their own programs, bound to their own plans, bound to their own sin. And until Jesus gave Himself on their behalf, on our behalf, they could not crown him king. He could not reign in their hearts. He had first to deal with their own bondage to sin. And I think so it is in your life and mine when we want to crown him and have King Jesus lead us or we want him to tell us what the next step in the road is before we've dealt with the essence of our problem. Before we've dealt with the essence of our problem which is our own bondage to our own lordship, our desires, each and every one of us, to our own Lord and Master. And so Jesus sends them away early. And this is the context of this little two-part drama as it's presented to us in Matthew's Gospel here in chapter 14. And the disciples are out on the water, and they're out on the water in obedience to the Lord. 
And I want us in the, in the, in the few minutes that we have left this morning to draw a couple of points and then an application from the text that we've read. And the first point is, I want us, when, we, uh, when we're done here, to know what to expect when we obey the Lord. And secondly, to know what to expect when we trust the Lord. And in doing this, I want to try perhaps to run across the grain of even American evangelical religion, which may be summed up in many ways in a dated book now, uh, but for me still an impressive book by J.I. Packer that he wrote several years ago, and the title of which is Hot Tub Religion. Any of you remember that little book, Hot Tub Religion? It's especially intriguing, the title, if you know who Packer is, this stoic old British guy, scholar, where he describes our American brand of evangelicalism as being like a hot tub, sensuous, relaxing, laid back, not in any way demanding. Now, the disciples thought that the moment of their vindication and Christ's vindication had arrived. It was here. The people wanted to make Him king, and yet Jesus sends them out on the lake, and in obedience they go. But can you imagine their conversation, perhaps their frustration? What's going on here? I don't get it. Isn't this the reason He came into the world? Isn't this the moment that we've looked for, that we've longed for? But they say, He sent us. And even as when He called us, we followed. Now He sent us and we've gone. We've done what the Lord said. At least we're safe out here because we're, we're out here in obedience to the Lord. And what happened? Smooth sailing? No, a storm comes up and engulfs them and threatens to sink them. I say this not out of my own experience, but uh, as a way to remind us of this, that those who have done sailing on small bodies of water or out in great bodies of water or or perhaps even been out in boats uh, fishing, when a mighty storm comes up, that there's probably no place on earth where you realize how acutely small in the universe you are than in the midst of a great storm at sea. I can remember being taken by my father to the shipyards in Charleston, South Carolina, in Norfolk, Virginia, and seeing those mighty vessels in Wilmington. Perhaps some of you have have been to Wilmington and USS North Carolina there and, and the, uh, the show that's put on there and just how impressive that was. But equally impressive to me were the tales of my father uh, who had been in the Navy for many years during the Second World War and he would speak of those great ships, those mighty naval vessels in the South Pacific and how those huge ships with hundreds of other sailors and soldiers in the sea would take that ship 
and literally pitch that ship out of the water. And then that ship would come, as it were, corkscrewing back down as if it were going to the center of the earth. And then the storm would pitch it back out again, just casting them up and down in these mighty waves in the midst of this mighty storm. And it really doesn't matter whether you're in a small dinghy or you're in a mighty ocean liner or naval vessel. The sea has a way of equalizing the size of those vessels, pitching them at will. And here we have these seasoned men, many of whom professional fishermen. They have made their living on the sea, in the storm. And it's a terrifying thing to them. And the first thing uh, I need to draw from this text over against much that we're told from, again, evangelicalism, is that obey the Lord and you'll be happy all the day. The disciples obeyed. The disciples obeyed Him and believed. And they were not happy. They were out in the boat in the midst of a storm and Jesus had sent them there. And they didn't know why. And if there's one thing I think we need to hear in our day, it's that in this world we will have troubles and tribulations, those things will follow us. Jesus said at the end of John chapter 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Don't be afraid because I have overcome the world. But He didn't say because I have overcome it, you won't have trouble. I've sort of reached the place in my life and and ministry where I've now... uh, got quite a few years under my belt and my observations uh, to draw from. And and many times I've heard people say to me, you know, uh, God has really been at work in my life. And I realize I haven't taken Him seriously as I should. And and, and, and now a, a new universe is opening up to me, and I want to get serious about the things of the Lord. I want to live for the Lord. I want to follow Him as I've never followed Him before. I don't tell them, but I feel my body sort of tense up, wondering what's going to come into their lives. Because often trials and circumstantial difficulties seem to be just around the corner. And we don't like this. Because what we want from the Lord is the hot tub. (laughs) Relaxing. Sensuous. Not demanding. Of course I'll obey. It's the only way to be happy all the day. I don't want to to get in trouble out there. I want the Lord's blessing on my life. And many of us have known beyond what we can comprehend. And sometimes we wonder when trials come, what is this all about? But the reality is 
This doesn't have to be a bad thing, but, but, can, but in fact can be just the opposite, a very good thing. Why? Because as long as the disciples were on the shore, they continued to dream their dreams. And the essence of their prayer was, My will be done. I want You to be King. Yes, Lord. I want You to be King now. I desire to rule and reign with You. I want it now. And Jesus had to send them into the storm in order to liberate them from all their false hopes and dreams. And then He came to them, walking on the water. And they were terrified of His of His approach as you and I might often be because we fail to recognize that it was the Lord. And in the things that the Lord brings into our lives to begin to turn us around, they are often more frightening than the reality of the storm itself. But Jesus says something absolutely tremendous. It reminds me of Render. Absolutely tremendous. <laughs> he says something absolutely tremendous to them uh, that I think is somewhat skewed in the translation here wherever you read Jesus saying, I am He or it is I um, here and in John's Gospel as well. Here in verse 27, uh, He comes to them and says, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And the literal translation is, it is I, it is I, I am, ego and me. It is the, excuse me, that, that divine self-identity, I am. This is who is here with you. In this storm, I am. What did God tell Moses when he asked, who shall I say has sent me? Say, I am has sent you. What is your name? My name is I am that I am. And Jesus over and over again in the Gospels will identify Himself by saying, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Ego and me. And now He comes and says, take courage. I am. I am the living, eternally self-existent God. I am here the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, the God of your fathers, the One for whom you belong, the One to whom you pray, I am, I am here, standing astride all the things that terrify you. Jesus comes across those waves, always astride, always above the things that frighten and discourage us and make us think that we're separated from His love and care. He comes walking right over the top of them and He meets us there in the midst of the storm. I think you and I need to understand that when we obey Him, when we obey Him, we will face trouble. And the second point comes in the second part of this dramatic event. And it has to do with when we trust Him. What should we expect when we really trust Him? You know, here's Peter. Peter, Peter thought, I will never doubt Jesus again. I'm at a new level. You know, I'm at, 
I'm at Mach 3 speed in my, in my Christian growth. I am at a new level. Uh, there the Lord is on the sea. How could I ever have doubted Him? How could I ever have had reservations about His judgment, His will? He's identified Himself as the very God of Israel. Of course, He's the Son of God. How could I be afraid? He's coming right after this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 out in the storm. You know, this is like coming back from camp. This is coming back from mission trip. This is coming back from conferences, all those places where we are cresting. We are riding these spiritual highs. And for, he, and for Peter, this is a huge spiritual boost. And I'll never be the same again. I'm never going to sin again. Never going to doubt the Lord again. Everything's going to be great. And thank the Lord for those retreats and, and those times when we're refreshed and, and built up. You know, hearts are changed in those concentrated times and, and hearts are moved. But you can also come back from those things thinking that you will never be the same again in your life. And for me, some of my lowest lows, spiritual crashes, have been following some of the highest highs in those particular kinds of retreats. But Peter here in verse 28 and follows thinks I'll never doubt again. I've moved to a new level of faith. And Peter, who's kind of known for his impulsive behavior, kind of, sees the Lord and he's got to do something. And he says, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you. I want to, I want to be with you, even if it means I have to be there out in the waves. And so Jesus says, come on, Peter. Come on, Peter. And Peter, with his eyes fixed on his Lord, steps out, perhaps with a faith he's never known, thinking that it is impossible that doubt should ever again fill his heart and mind. But after a few steps, it's as if you know a, a movie camera fades focus on the central picture and suddenly brings into focus everything else around it. All of a sudden, for some reason, unknown, I'm sure to Peter himself, Jesus becomes blurred. And the wind and the waves become painfully sharp and painfully clear. And his heart is once again filled with fear that he thought he had left behind forever. And he's filled with anxiety and doubt and begins to sink into the ways. Sound familiar? Is this a bad thing? Is this just silly Peter overreaching again? It's when he's sinking in the waves. It's when he's sinking in the waves that he cries out, Lord, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches down and draws him out and puts him in the boat and gets in with him and the wind comes down and he takes them safely to shore. What's the purpose of this? Why has this been preserved and recorded for us with such detail? Why is it important 
that we hear and apply this word. I believe because it runs against the grain of of human religion, even cherished evangelical traditions, which are oriented much more on American success and feel-goodism than gospel reality. You know, the Bible is filled with spectacular failures. Spectacular failures. Brokenness all over the place. Who in their failures saw the King in His beauty and learned to worship Him. The Scriptures are filled with dysfunctional families which God desired not merely so much to heal of their dysfunction, as He did to use those broken ones to worship Him and to seek their joy and satisfaction in Him. Sometimes I think our fascination with correction and Sweetness and light and healing with therapy, with getting my situation resolved and put right so I can then serve the Lord. This is the whole point that God uses the broken, the misshaped, the weak like you and me. And He uses the obedient, frightened believer and he uses that trouble and he uses the believing doubting lord i do believe but help my unbelief to do the one thing that he wants most of all to do in us and even through us the disciples were compelled in the midst of the story in the midst of the storm and peter as he sank into the waves, to come to grips with the only one thing that ultimately and finally matters, that for which we were created in verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. God created you and me to worship Him. And until you learn to worship Him, until I learn to worship Him unrivaled, our hearts will never be at rest, whatever the circumstances. They may be soothed for a while because of of those things that we cling to and clutch to that may give us satisfaction for a while, even work or or family, or health, or pleasure. Those good things that God so often does give us, but which we can turn into idols and try to make them um, a little household God who will get on His knees and in our boat and grant us what we really want. And so in mercy and in grace, He sends us into the storm. And he lets us think that we're going to sink beneath the waves in order that again we will cry out, Lord, Lord, save me. And then as he reaches down and pulls us up, and for a moment our eyes are off all those things 
and our eyes are on Him. We're drawn back to that for which we were created. And that is to worship Him. To worship Him. Do we love the Lord? Or do we love the things we get from the Lord? Do we love worshiping Him? You know, if this sounds remote and, and crazy, then we need a lot of introspection. Because to see Him, to see the Lord, even for a moment, even as the veil may be lifted back, as we see a little of the King in His beauty, our only response is that of worship. Of worship, ascribing worth and glory. It's to be sent to our knees, lost in worship and praise and adoration. That's the only response of a creature in the presence of the creature's Creator. It's worship. It's worship. The church of Christ does not exist for evangelism. It exists for worship. The evangelism is that yearning on our part to reach out and draw others into the worshiping community that they may know what we have found in the presence of the King. The church doesn't exist for the sake of mission. It exists for worship. And missions is that great loving reach of the church into the world in order to draw those from every tribe and tongue and nation where? To the throne. To the throne of the King where they all together will sing the song of the Lamb. And if you've not yet begun to develop a taste for worship, for worship, then do we know the King? You know, if you say to an eight-year-old boy, it's great being married. Man, I love being married. It is just wonderful. It's mysterious. It's marvelous. It's sharing a life. It is, it is the incarnation of that great mystery of two becoming one. What's he going to say? Yuck. Yuck. Because he's a kid, but by God's grace, he's moving toward that time when it's no longer silly, but realizing the great treasure of that adventure, a man and a woman's love for each other, the, the deep joy of friendship. But the little boy, he wants, he wants peanut butter fluff and can't imagine why one's mouth might drool to change the metaphor to a juicy steak. <laughs> you know, it's an acquired taste. Have you acquired a taste for that which you have been created? Or are we still like eight-year-old boys, hardly able to fathom what it is? to see the King in all His beauty. If you are a child of God, expect to find yourself on the water, often in the storm, crying out 
in order that your loving God in mercy may put you where you learn to bend the knee with eyes on Jesus and say, yes, from my heart of hearts, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, teach us. Teach us to worship. And in whatever situation we find ourselves, this day or other days, may Jesus come astride those waves to meet us and speak the words of grace. Take courage. I am. Do not be afraid. Do this, we pray, O Lord, for your kingdom's sake. Amen.